Freedom Radio. Uh, I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a person who knows cheap food is not cheap. Today we are talking about the Urban Food System Symposium coming up on August 8th to the 11th, hosted by the University of Minnesota in partnership with Kansas State University and Project Sweetie Pie. Um, in studio with us is one of the keynote speakers, LaDonna Redman. LaDonna is a food activist, a candidate for District 3 Hennepin County Commissioner, and uh, currently LaDonna is the Diversity and Community Engagement Manager for Seward Community Co-op in Minneapolis. And while working at Seward, LaDonna fulfilled her personal goal of helping to build a co-op grocery store in an urban African-American community. It is known as the Friendship Store. It's the second location for Seward. So welcome to the show, LaDonna. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, I love your speech that you gave at the Bioneers. And I actually oh, love... that was a long time ago. I know, ago. it was a long time ago, but I was like, it was a long time ago. But I like the way you started that. Mm-hmm. I know it was a long time ago, but you started by honoring your ancestors and, and, and acknowledging the, the people who, who kind of all brought us to this moment, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I like to start that way, too, because I think that's... That's a real powerful way because I know I was raised with that idea that I mean, my dad was a truck driver. We had six kids in the family. His mom survived the depression. But there's always this aliveness about the ancestors and what everyone did to sort of make our world a better place and that we had that obligation for future generations. Mm-hmm. That was a, a really special day um one of my um my elders and my tra- I practice a traditional african religion called ifa and um one of the uh, matriarchs of the of our entire lineage had passed away and her transition services were the same day that i need that i needed to speak at pioneers and i think i mentioned that i mentioned mm-hmm. nochi so i did a, a full prayer um in honor of her, because I wasn't I wasn't with my family on that day, but I was with my Bioneers family. Um, I feel like she would have wanted me to go, so I went. So yeah, I remember that. That's like a <laughs> light years ago. I don't uh, even. Time know. is a funny concept, isn't oh, it? Oh my god! <laughs> I I don't. You know, I even, I think I remember what I had on. It was the first time that I think I spoke to a crowd of more than like five hundred people, it's like some ten thousand people or something. Yeah. 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 Connect that with this urban agriculture movement. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, I became connected with Bioneers because of um, my son's um, food allergies. And he had these food allergies. He was, he was uh, allergic to or is still allergic to um, all, shelf, all shellfish. It's like shellfish, all dairy products, eggs, and peanuts. And I began, um, my husband and I, we began to convert vacant lots to urban farm sites in Chicago. And that put me in the vicinity of a lot of foundations who supported our work. Um, I would say I'm an early adopter in urban agriculture. And that put me, um, because we were getting funded by the Kellogg Foundation, we met folks at Bioneers. And so Bioneers was a gathering and still is a gathering of people who were thinking very differently about how we were connected um, and that we were all connected and that we're all connected through um, the planet, through the ecology and biology, if you will, of the planet. And um, so that's how I ended up on Bioneers stage after a couple of years of going and it was a fantastic gathering. I think I went like 10 years oh, in did. a row. I, I loved I, until I, I was just like, Bioneers. I was just like, you know what? I got to make space for some other people here. I don't need to grow old coming to Bioneers. And, and there is, there's, uh, it's not quite the Bioneers, but there is a 2018 Urban Food System Symposium going on here in the Twin Cities in August. Yeah, no, that's not Bioneers. That's, no. Bioneers but, has its own hippie flavor kind of going. Yeah. Well, we can get a hippie flavor going here, don't you think? I could, but I don't think we'd be able to do it at the university. I mean, but Bioneers was like in Marin County. You've been, you've gone. Yeah. I've, in Marin County... Um, in just the most beautiful kind of setting, perfect weather. And so people are doing cookouts, campouts, they dancing, they singing. You got the tarot card people, and then you got your organic food people, and then you got people reading rocks. I mean, hey, it was like, it was eclectic. Um, 
No, I don't think that you're going to do that at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I mean, I don't know. I have, I've got the 2018 Urban Food System Symposium um, here. It's got such an eclectic blend, but some real deep blends. And one of the big struggles um, with urban agriculture is how to protect land. And so we're going to be joined right now by phone um, by um, – um, let me get the right notes uh, – your name, Greg? Greg, thank you. Um, my notes are gone. Greg, welcome to the show. Uh, Greg Rosenberg, you're an attorney, and I have your exact title right here. You're with you're the co-director of the Center for Community Land Trust Innovation, which is a program of the Global Land Alliance. Um, so tell us a little bit about protecting land for urban agriculture. All right, well, uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Yeah, I got involved with... Uh, land to a project we did here in Madison called Troy Garden, which combined mixed-income co-housing, community gardens, and urban farms, and a prairie restoration project. And in working on that project, uh, when I was part of the Madison Area Community Land Trust, I found out that uh, none of the community gardens in Madison were permanently protected. So, Greg, unfortunately, unfortunately, we have a pretty bad connection with you, but I wanted to just kind of, I'm going to briefly say that one of the things that you mentioned is that if we, if we want urban agriculture, we need to protect urban land for urban agriculture. And that is a global movement that how it is to protect um, land for the commons. And that's what you're involved yes. in? Thank you. Is this a better connection? Yes, it's a much better connection. Thank you, Greg. All right, good. Yeah, so the, you know, there's an issue, you know, my focus primarily is in the mainland U.S., and where you've got a whole lot of the food being grown inside cities on land where there is not long-term tenure. And that could be uh, situations where there's no lease whatsoever, five-year lease, um, but very rarely do growers own the land that they grow on in, in cities in the U.S., and so there's a real critical need for the involvement of land trusts, whether that's community land trusts or conservation land trusts, to serve as a land-holding entity to safeguard these lands long-term because a lot of folks within city governments still view agriculture as an interim use inside cities. And so that's why it's really important to seek long-term protection for these lands so that when the political winds change, um, the lands aren't lost. And I assume you agree with that, LaDonna. How do we protect land for urban farming? Yeah, I think part of it is the the legal system, but I think we have to be careful um, over-reliance on, you know, legal systems or mechanisms. One of the reasons why people are in urban communities is because they ran from land, I mean, ancestrally. Um, As an African-American whose family came from the South, my family left land... um, because they were terrorized off of it. So the reality is, you know, racial inequity, a racial intolerance, um, coupled with terrorism, forced people to urban communities like um, Madison and Milwaukee and Chicago and Detroit. And so now the reclaiming of the land isn't just really about the land. It's really also about facing the legacy of... Um, how land has been used and as a weapon in our communities. And so either it's a vacant lot um, waiting for development in, 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 uh, on the west side of Chicago, for example, or in um, you know another community, like let's say if we're talking about Lake of the Isles here in, um, in Minneapolis, we wouldn't call it vacant. We would call it available. You know, um, prime real estate, that kind of, you know, those kinds of words matter. So I think land trust is important. I mean, my the urban farm sites that we did definitely were part of a land trust um, called um, Open Lands. And I knew about it because um, a number of residents in my community had converted gardens, and I'd helped them to converted spots to gardens. And so they were growing flowers on them, making them look beautiful. Um, so... I think I pushed the envelope on the production piece because no one was growing food. Um, and so now the question was, well, you're going to grow food. Or is it going to be for a for-profit purpose or for a not-for-profit purpose? So the land in and of itself now has some um, ability to help people acquire capital, but the government doesn't understand that 
that role is needs to be there in order for people to uplift themselves. So it's complicated, but it's, it's complicated. So, Greg, did you want to comment on that? The historical inequities alive in the land and how we can correct those historical legacies? Yeah, I I spent about a year working with folks in Detroit around uh, land tenure and urban agriculture issues, and I learned a lot from that experience. One of the key things in Detroit is it's very important to uh, leave open the option for individual ownership of land and not just rely on a nonprofit serving as a land-holding entity. So I think a variety of approaches are needed. You know, the challenges in negotiating with cities if you're on city-owned land um, that's a very complex process, and cities can be very difficult to deal with, even if they're well-intentioned, which is the case in Detroit. So I think, you know, the issue is how do you get, how do you provide security to people who are growing food in cities? You could do that through keeping it in active use. A vibrant community garden is hard to shut down, but as they found out in New York City under Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, he, he was interested in, in selling off kind of a huge percentage of the community garden properties to developers to raise money for the city, and there was a huge fight about that. And that really kind of brought home the point that when the political winds change, land can be lost. So I think it's, you know, the issue is not to impose a solution on communities, but to talk to folks about, you know, how secure are they on their land, and then to have kind of variety of tools you can bring to the table, you know, to secure the kind of tenure that they're looking for. We're going to need to take a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're talking about the Urban Food System Symposium coming up on August 8th through the 11th at the University of Minnesota, the graduate Minneapolis. And um, joining us in studio is LaDonna Redman, who's running for Hennepin County Commissioner and is currently working at Seward Co-op. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coop. I'm Richard Painter, and I'm running in the DFL primary for the U.S. Senate. I believe we're at a critical juncture in our nation's history. Our democracy is under siege by the Trump administration. Foreign influence is unchecked as politicians exploit power for private gain rather than the public good. But what is happening right now is a symptom of a larger disease. The corruptive influence of money in politics makes government unresponsive to the people. For 25 years, I've been speaking out against corruption on Wall Street and in Washington. Now I want to fight for you in the United States Senate. I will fight foreign-owned mining companies seeking to pollute our waterways. I will fight against money and politics and corruption on all levels of government. I will fight to initiate investigations and hearings for the treasonous behavior of President Trump. It's time to impeach. Please support me in the DFL primary on August 14. See all the issues at PainterMinnesota.com. I'm Richard Painter, and I approve this message. Ad prepared and paid for by Painter Minnesota. Hi, Sarah from Vinaigrette. Farmer's markets are everywhere, and summer's bounty is limitless. Try rustic caprese salad using spring mix, fresh mozzarella, grape or cherry tomatoes, red onion, fresh basil, garlic olive oil, and our 18-year-age balsamic. Or try grilled romaine brushed with Tunisian olive oil. Vinaigrette makes it easy to love your vegetables. Visit us at 50th and Xerxes in South Minneapolis, or 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. This is Chad, owner of AM950, here to tell you about Snap Construction. They're experts in roofing, siding, window, and insurance restoration. They have energy-efficient products available for both residential and commercial properties. This spring, when we needed a company to take a look at a problem with our roof, I called the company I knew I could trust, Snap Construction. I've known Ryan, the owner at Snap Construction, for years, so I knew I could trust him. Don't just take my word for it. Check out their reviews online. They are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior contractor online in the metro area. Over the years, Ryan has always said the same thing to me about his work. If we build it, shouldn't we be held accountable for the work indefinitely? He backed that statement up years ago when Snap Construction was a pioneer in offering a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee on all their work. 
For a free estimate or general questions, call the locally owned company AM950 Trust Snap Construction at 612-333-SNAP. That's 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. They have financing options available. to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlin, and in studio with us is LaDonna Redman. Um, we're talking about the Urban Food Symposium uh, coming up at the University of Minnesota, August 8th through the 11th. And in that first segment, um, the, when we talk about urban a- agriculture, if we want to grow food, we need land. And you were talking about the history of land actually being used as a weapon. Um, have, has our culture kind of kept land as a prisoner? I mean, how do we, how do we make this holistic yeah i you know i the reason i don't say the reason that prisoner for me at least in the context of the united states um is that land has never been used as a prisoner for native american people it's never been used as a prisoner for it's been used as a weapon it's been weaponized and people have been forced off of it and and they have and it's not a pretty forcing it's violent it's been um about scalping people and killing buffalo and um, or tying people to land based on the skin color, maybe that way. But even in that, it really wasn't so much about the land. It was about the labor. So when we start to talk about how racialized our food agriculture growing system is, we began to really understand that the agricultural piece is really just a byproduct of it. That's why I was like, well, yeah, no, you I, know, it's it's not it's not really about the food because you have to have healthy soil to grow food. So it has to be about the soil. It has to be about the land and it has to be about who works that land. So the conversation about the food is a it's a great conversation, but you quickly run out of road if you stay focused on the food. Right. You have to look at the historical. You have to look at how why, why are people why do people even need a land trust? You know, we have a land trust in Chicago. The land trust, the partnership is between the city of Chicago um, and um, the Department of Planning, and then they formed a nonprofit separate entity. So that separate entity purchased the land that um, had tax liens against it for a dollar. And then they gave um, agreements to community groups like myself, and we used that land. And um, the whole idea was that nothing could come out of the trust once it went in. So as far as I know, it's never happened. But I don't know of other trusts that work that way. Most of them are in trust until somebody decides they don't want them to be in trust anymore. Well, um, it is complex. We're, we're right now we're going to join in. I just want to get Valentine um, Cadieu. She's the chair of the Twin Cities Agricultural Land Trust on. Um, hi, Valentine. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Laura. Thanks for having me. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the Twin Cities Agricultural Land Trust. So we are a community land trust in the tradition that, that Greg and I think LaDonna have been talking about. And I, I think it's important to note, back on our, the way we started on ancestors, that the community land trust movement in the United States is very much rooted in the black agricultural tradition in the South, the new communities and this desire to heal and repair the relationship with land that had been traumatized by the way that land has been used and to the way that agricultural labor has been treated and the way this all has been racialized. So I think that Lozano is definitely right and that we need to understand why do people need a new relationship to land and why might trust be that. Here in the Twin Cities, we're lucky to have a lot of organizations that work on the community housing side, trying to retain affordable housing, and really rising out of the members of those community land trusts, thinking that in addition to land for housing, they wanted land to help supply this longer-term tenure that Greg was talking about, that the Twin Cities, TCALT, the Twin Cities Community Agricultural Land Trust was formed. So, um, yeah, so, Latana, how did... Let's connect all these dots because there's, it's, 
it's it's hard because there's so much pressure on the land right now from the um, dominant economic way of thinking. And what I'm hearing you guys talk about is that we need to get to a, a community way of feeling about land, and 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 yet we're caught in all this turmoil and chaos. Almost, would you, would you agree with that, Ladonna? Yeah, I agree. We caught in chaos and turmoil. <laughs> yeah. well, anytime you look at CNN, you can find that out. Um, right. Yeah, you know, I think there aren't very many, I mean, there aren't any easy um, solutions. One of the things I think that urban agriculture definitely represents is um, the trend to, to land stewardship. And I think because of trauma, um, some communities have neglected their role in land stewardship. And so what urban agriculture is doing is kind of bringing it back and saying, you know, no, we need to take a good look at this, not just as individuals, but as a community. How do we care for the community and how do we care for each other? And how do we care for the land that we stand on? So I, I think the promise for urban agriculture and for urban food systems is that it will return people to land stewardship. It will turn return people to sustainability. It will return people to a way of living that really is, you know, elusive to some people. And it's not about being, it's not about driving the Prius or shopping at organic food stores or going to a particular state, space. It can just be about what's going on in your community, and then you can culturally define and socially define what the local food system looks like as opposed to having it superimposed on you. Yeah, and that it's the ultimate of freedom, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's true freedom, food freedom. Food freedom. Mm-hmm. Valentine, would you agree with that? I would, and I would say um, one of the things that, that I've really appreciated working in the Twin Cities is that there's such a range of different kinds of relationship of land and a lot of respect between different groups of how how that kind of care for the land can be practiced. So a call-out I'd love to make is if this kind of community land trust works best if more community is involved. So having people who care about the land, especially this agricultural side of it, we are always looking for more people to be involved. I think one of the dangers in communities controlling land is that they become small and insular communities. And the way to to really protect against that is to have processes in place to deal with trauma, to to deal with inclusivity, to make sure there's equity in the way that we relate to land, that that involves understanding the, the heavy histories that many of us are responsible for. So right in the past few years, I'm just going to say the, the major focus We've been supporting a few projects that are trying to gain more access to land. But in every meeting, we've also been trying to have a basis of of education and support for healing with our relationship with land. Yeah, healing the relationship with the land and respecting water and soil. It's it's a... It's a different way of being than is common in our dominant culture, and it's 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 our natural way of being. And like riding a bike, it will probably just right come back to us when we're when we're gardening. I mean, one of my co-gardeners, she loves to garden because she says it's her therapy. And we're living in a culture right now where the most prescribed drugs for our our our, our people, uh, our teenagers, is for anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Is that connected? I think so. I mean, I. Things have changed just in the past 20 years. I mean, I um, purposefully moved out of the city of Chicago and took our kids out to a more rural area just to get them outside without fear of retaliation for being outside. (laughs) We're going to have to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to connect this conversation to nutrition and lead. Um, There's a connection between lead and nutrition, Um, and we're going to be talking with Jim Doton from the city of Minneapolis. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shambot from Shambot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. We always offer a free exam and x-rays for new patients because we believe you shouldn't have to pay to find out what's wrong with your teeth. Call today. We're open early and late and Saturdays to fit your schedule. As my daughter Rachel says, If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us. 
It's a good day to be indigenous. Native Roots Radio presents I'm Awake. Our weekly Native American talk radio show will discuss national and local Native American news and events. Local and national guests will help us keep current with Mother Earth, tribal, and Twin City issues. Native American issues are human issues. We invite all people to walk hand-in-hand with our struggles, victories, and achievements. Listen Saturdays at 2 p.m. I am awake. Jeff Warner here for Warner Stellion to share my latest attempt to help you break up with your tired, inefficient appliances. Replace them. Get our guaranteed lowest price on beautiful, super efficient ones. Plus 50 bucks for every appliance replaced. Plus, free delivery and basic installation from our trusted specialists. And 18 months zero interest financing. This is a great deal, so we can only afford to extend this offer for a very short time. Don't wait. Choose Warner Stellion and save on incredible new appliances today. Being a dog is awesome, except when you really gotta go, but you're stuck inside. That's why I had my human called the Urban Dog. Daily walks, field trips, play groups, one-on-one time, safe off-leash play, and pet sitting. I love being an Urban Dog. The Urban Dog works with your schedule and can create a plan that fits your needs. The Urban Dog. Exercise, explore, socialize. Let the journey begin. Call 651-231-6333. That's 651-231-6333. Woo, woo, woo. Northeast Minneapolis is known for its creativity, and you'll know exactly why when you eat at Hazel's Northeast. Their creatively prepared comfort food will have you coming back week after week. Breakfasts like biscuits and gravy, granola pancakes, and brisket hash. For lunch, homemade soup, and one of the best Rubens in town. And don't miss the daily risotto or Chef Ali's ever-changing dinner specials. Come on in. Bring the whole family. Hazel's Northeast delivers real good food. Family owned at 29th and Johnson in Minneapolis. Summer is the season to clean. For roof, siding, garage floors, decks, and more, Blue Sky Services can help you out. Anything that can be power washed, Blue Skies can safely soft wash. A power washing alternative that doesn't damage your home. So don't wait until it's too late and you need to replace things. Call Blue Sky Services at 651-447-4484. And tell them that you're an AM950 listener to save up to $100 in July only. That is 651-447-4484. Call now to save on July services. With your AM950 weather, I'm Anna Schultz-Carlson. Look for sunny skies today with a high near 80. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 79. Monday, mostly sunny with a high near 81. Ferndale Market is a third-generation turkey farm in Cannon Falls. Ferndale's fully cooked products are uncured, meaning they don't have chemical nitrates and are cured with celery salt instead. You can find Ferndale turkeys all over Minnesota or find more information at ferndalemarketonline.com. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline, and we're talking about the Urban Food System Symposium at the University of Minnesota on August 11th, August 8th through the 11th. And Valentine, you wanted to mention before you, you have to go, but you want to mention um, the annual meeting you have on August 7th. Yes, yeah, so the afternoon before the symposium starts, we're taking advantage of several of the amazing people who are going to be in town to do a workshop that'll be comparing what's happening here in the Twin Cities with what's happening in Douglas County in Kansas and around Madison in Wisconsin with Helen Schnoes, who's the Sustainability and Food System Planner for Douglas County, and Martin Bailkey, who works a lot with Greg Rosenberg, who we've been talking to. He works at the Center for Resilient Cities in Madison. So from 1 to 4 p.m. on August 7th, we'll be meeting, and the details for the location and how to respond to the invitation are on the tcult.org website. So okay, so that because you broke up again. And do you want the general public just to uh, show up um, uh, to that? We have we have an Eventbrite invite for that, so we can plan. We'll, we'll end. It's na- National Afternoon Out, so we'll have a barbecue at the Peace Garden at the end of that. So to plan for food, we have an invite we'd love people to respond to, but it's open to everyone who's interested. And, of course, again, it's Twin Cities Agricultural Land Trust, or T-C-A-L-T, correct? Yes. And Great, it's free and open. So. Well, I thank you so. Many of you there? Yeah, we'll see you there. I thank you so much, um, Valentine, for joining us. Thanks so much. And now joining us, uh, so one of the, this conference really covers a gamut, and uh, one of the um, presentations is going to be building lead resilient kids through targeted nutrition. And with us um, via phone uh, is Jim Doton, uh, Doton uh, from the city of Minneapolis. Good morning, Jim. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. 
Yes, he did. Awesome. So tell me about what you're going to be speaking. What does it mean to build lead-resistant kids? Well, one of the problems that we have is uh, still have lead exposures to children in Minneapolis. The numbers have dropped dramatically over the years, but what we're finding is that the effects are seen at lower levels than believed before. So there is no safe level of lead, uh, but the levels that uh, where we take action are, are dropping all the time. And it gets harder to do as you start fixing housing stock and doing other things. But one of the critical things is how do you prevent the kids from uh, absorbing the lead in the first place, or how do you reduce that effect? And what we what the research has found is that children that are deficient in iron and calcium have a tendency to uptake lead faster or better, more efficiently than kids who have proper nutrition and don't have those micronutrient deficiencies. And so one of the things we're trying to do is, uh, I should say as well, uh, if a kid is hungry, they will absorb 100% of the lead that they ingest via paint chips in the house or dust or whatever. If the kid has a full stomach, is not hungry, that level drops by 50%. So just making sure proper nutrition the kids are fed makes a big difference on how the kids absorb lead. Uh, then as well, as we mentioned, the calcium and lead, the calcium and iron levels really affect how lead is absorbed in the, in, by the children. One of the things we're doing is we've been working in the Phelps neighborhood, which is one of our areas with higher levels of uh, kids with lead, elevated blood levels, and uh, there's an organization there, the 24th Street Urban Farming Coalition, that we've been working with, and they have a number of gardens. Uh, we, through a grant through HUD, we've made an arrangement to buy packages of uh, vegetables that can help with the iron and calcium deficiencies and make arrangements to deliver those to families with children who have elevated, elevated blood levels, so children that have been poisoned. And uh, this is something that, over time, you can drop those nutrient levels or the uh, uh, lead levels. But we're really trying to build those kids up. And what we really need to do is work on getting that nutrition in, not just when they're poisoned, but beforehand, so they can prevent the kids from absorbing those type of uh, contaminants. So uh, this is, uh, it's so logical to have a society where kids are eating fruits and vegetables, but the reality is that not that many kids, we're not getting enough fruits and vegetables. Economics has a lot to do with it. If if you don't have a lot of resources, where do you spend your money on? And also the access to good food is limited in areas where you don't have uh, the neighborhood stores don't have uh, a good source of those products or the grocery store doesn't stock them or it's just economically out of your reach. So, LaDonna, we started talking about this in terms of honoring our ancestors and having quality food, fruits and vegetables, healthy, vibrant foods. That's something that's our birthright. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so is housing, though. I mean, if we, if the housing stock is such that, you know, the rental properties, while they are being licensed um, to provide rental properties, I think a part of the licensing process should be removing lead paint. From, oh, yes. You know, I mean, so it's like we sort of, one of the things that challenge, is challenging to me about urban agriculture is that, the onus is on the community to solve the ills of the food system. Well, right or wrong, you know, we're doing it. But really the system is broken. And unless we address what's broken in the system, we'll always be doing, you know, like Band-Aid kind of solutions, which I'm not saying that lead prevention is a Band-Aid. It's very important. But I also think there's a problem with the housing stock. There's a problem with holding landlords accountable who will put those same people out of those apartments, they will evict them. They can evict them quickly and efficiently and ruin their chances for getting apartments anyplace else. And if they complain, they can also force them out. So it, we don't have a safety net to really support people. And so, yeah, they need great food, but they also need great housing. I think housing is should be a right. And if you're living in a place where the lead on the house and the lead in the lead chips in the window haven't, you know, the, the lead from, you know, the window frame hasn't been scraped out and taken away and repainted as a part of your license to be a landlord, 
mm-hmm. the city of Minneapolis, then we we are overlooking yeah. some responsibility that so, we have. Of course. Now, Jim, you're the uh, Environmental Services Unit. Did you have a comment on that? Yeah, we've got a unit here led Healthy Homes that we've been working on to address the housing issue through a HUD grant. And uh, we're working hard to get ahead of it. The, the numbers have been dropping steadily over time. It's been a great improvement, but there's still room to go. Like I said, we've seen the numbers drop, but we also find that the effects are at lower and lower numbers. Mm-hmm. And one of the th- but one of the things we're looking at is that housing stock and how can we find you know find these locations. And we're looking for people who uh, to enter the program as private homeowners as well, not just the, the landlords. But uh, in order to upgrade uh, the windows, replace the windows, uh, take care of the, the chip painting, uh, replace, you know, get those new things in and get the lead services removed and uh, stabilized out of there, mm-hmm. clean up the houses. And we've said we've been making progress, but there's still more, more work to do. And as we do that, they said the, the low-lying fruit is being picked. And how do we work additionally to work on the kids' uh, uh, preventative nature to prevent the kids from being able to absorb it in the first place? But it's, it's two sides of the coin, and, and we've, we're trying to hit both of them. So I, I thank you so much, Jim, um, uh, for joining us. Uh, you're the Supervisor of Environmental Services at the Minneapolis Health Department, Jim Dalton. Uh, thank you so much, and you'll be speaking at the um, at the uh, Urban Food System Symposium on Building Lead-Resilient Kids Through Targeted Nutrition. So thank you for joining us. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, and so, LaDonna, what I hear under this is the relationships of power in food. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm on uh, the local green. There's this young woman, um, and she's like, yeah, food is really power. It's what it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a part of a power system. I mean, I think food, to me, is um, just a tool for organizing community. It's not to me. It, at this point in my life and in my career, I don't believe it's really just about the food. It's about how do you use food or conversations around food to help people get what they really want, which is autonomy and to be able to live the lives that they want to live. So then food is not so much the end. It just really is a place to begin the conversation. Yeah. So there was an article, Localization, a Strategic Alternative to Globalized Authoritarianism. Which what is in the what, world does that mean? Well, okay, so <laughs> in China, China just outlawed the BBC. I mean, China's not allowing the BBC in. Oh, yeah, they're mad. Yeah, they're, 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 uh, yeah and then Putin and then Trump. I mean, there, there's this global authoritarianism, and I think there's actually spiritual components to that, but I don't know for a fact, but localization is a strategic alternative. So this is something um, written in May 12, 2018 in localfutures.org. Quote, under globalization, competition has increased dramatically. Job security has become a thing of the past, and most people find it increasingly difficult to earn a livable wage. At the same time, identity is under threat as cultural diversity is replaced by a consumer monoculture worldwide. Under these conditions, it's not surprising that people have become increasingly insecure. As advertisers known for nearly a century of experience, insecurity leaves people easier to exploit. So the food is, how do we create a secure world? I know. Yeah, I mean, the, you said the last part of what you said before you read that was that there's a spiritual component or a religious component to that. And, of course, I mean, colonialism has always had a religious component to yes. it. I mean, I can't, uh, you know, yes. I can't quote all of the different parts of the Bible that were used to call Native um, people savages and um, make um, slavery a natural occurrence in the lives of Africans. You know, I mean, so there's all of this ideas around manifest destiny mm-hmm. that um, was really based in religion, that, and particularly based in this idea of whiteness and superiority. So, yeah, it makes sense to me, you know, that this is, you know, part of the conversation. But um, I think, again, you know, food is the beginning of the conversation. When indigenous people are starting to reclaim indigenous food ways and share those stories with us, at least in the United States, we have to we have a reclamation that has to happen. And part of that might be reparations. But there's definitely a reclamation of the history and the story that mm-hmm. we tell each other and tell ourselves about the founding of this country. And what is founded on, and it's really founded on the theft of land and the theft of labor. So, yeah, <laughs> it's right. It's like at the end of the day, 
No, people can't afford, you know, they can't find the jobs that they need to pay their bills. But that has always really been the case for certain people in this country. And so now it's becoming what white supremacy is doing is making it so that even people who are in white bodies are being oppressed by this notion of the white white supremacist. So when we talk about the 99% and the 1%, we're talking about primarily white people in terms of the 1%, but that small number of people have the power to oppress all the other people, no matter of their race or their color. And so we're finding out that this thing around white supremacy is a little shaky. It used to be around race. Now it's not about race. It's about power and control. It's about power and control. Um, and it is <laughs> like, okay, so one story I, I, I know from my own experience, and I, I've shared this a couple of, I have six kids. We, we got two vacations every year on, on six kids, on one salary, a truck driver's salary. And those times, and I know there was white privilege with that. I mean, that was not open to everyone. But there was one of the things that I think happened is that in, in Minneapolis, there was a truck driver strike at the turn of the century. People got together, and we felt like, how do we create a world? And it gets back to how we started this show. It was the ancestors. How did you make it better for the next group? How do we honor the people who brought us here to this moment and create the moment that would honor them? And that's what we can do in the urban agriculture movement. I would like to think so, but I think we got a little bit more work to do. I agree with you. (laughs) You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm John Peterson, and at Ferndale Market, we are proud to provide our free-range turkey to local restaurants and natural food stores. One of our partners since the beginning has been Birchwood Cafe, and we're excited to announce a new partnership product, the Birchwood Turkey Burger Patty. Made from their popular turkey burger recipe using our antibiotic-free turkey and Birchwood's local and organic ingredients. Put an end to bland turkey burgers. Find this and all our Ferndale turkey products at your local co-op or natural food store. Visit FerndaleMarket.com. The only thing better than being outdoors soaking up that summer sunshine is coming into a nice, cool, air-conditioned house afterwards. So if you're looking at updating or buying a new AC... Standard Heating and Air Conditioning has some great systems at $700 off during July. There's even easy financing options available on approved credit. It's no sweat. Really, no sweat. Call today and ask how you can save $700 on your new air conditioner. Learn more at standardheatingdeals.com. Some restrictions apply. It's grilling season and Vinaigrette has some sizzling recipes to inspire you. How about summertime grilled fajitas? Just create a marinade with our golden balsamic or champagne vinegar and chili garlic or jalapeno olive oil and marinade beef or chicken. Add red onions, red, green, and yellow peppers and throw them on the grill. Or try grilled steak brushed with our truffle or garlic olive oil. Visit us at 50th and Xerxes in South Minneapolis and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior or online at vinaigrettemn.com. Do yourself a favor and check out the amazing cuisine of EatLocalMinnesota.com. More than just a website, EatLocalMinnesota.com provides you with the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities. The award-winning Hazel's Northeast combines the feel of a small-town diner with the vibrant nature of its Northeast Minneapolis neighborhood. Whether it's breakfast, lunch, weekend brunch, or dinner, their classically inspired and creatively prepared American comfort food is always made from scratch. Hazel's Northeast at 29th and Johnson in Northeast Minneapolis. EatLocalMinnesota.com The dedicated staff at Nightingale Restaurant take pride in presenting a thoughtful and delicious approach to food and drink, whether you're visiting for dinner, happy hour, or brunch. Their focus on made-from-scratch meals using sustainable and local ingredients is likely to make Nightingale your go-to spot for inspired food and drinks. Nightingale, Lindell and 26th in Minneapolis. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. Guess I must be done. Shed a pocket full of horses. Trojans of abuse. 
So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline. In studio with us is LaDonna Redman, and we are talking about the Urban Food System Symposium, August 8th through the 11th. And got to get the little prints in for you. Got to have a little prints. <laughs> I was just like, oh, y'all know how this go. We got to have a little prints. <laughs> Um, so tell us a little bit about your involvement in the uh, Urban Egg Symposium coming up. Uh, you know, my involvement is super limited. Um, I was asked a few months ago to um, do a keynote, and so I will, and I am. So my keynote is um, August 9th, I think, in yeah. the evening um, at the Bell Museum. That's about all I know. It's still a couple weeks away. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it like that because we're taping no, this. But anyway, it's taped. I'm sorry. I just ruined it. Dinner at Bell Museum. You did not ruin it. Dinner at Bell at Natural Bell Museum. And that's a new opening. But you'll be the keynote from six to eight mm-hmm. on Thursday, um, August ninth. Yeah. Um, so the symposium itself opens on August eighth with a pre-symposium tour, and then Thursday, August ninth, um, incredible speakers, um, including um, uh, like some of the topics are going to be towards a more equitable, healthy, and environmentally friendly urban food system, um, and then the challenges of growing in air, urban areas. Um, community and economic development in urban agriculture. This again on Thursday, food security, food security in crisis. So one of the other key things about this urban agricultural movement is can we feed ourselves? And that's part of that power. Yeah. And, I, you know, we have a, a food system that is, uh, you know, oppressive. You know, I mean, it's, it's relentless in its messaging around, you know, big companies being able to feed the world and where your food should come from and whether it's healthy or not. So that'll be an interesting uh, conversation. Malik Yakini is also um, going to be there from D-Town Farms. He's, you know, a powerhouse in the uh, urban agriculture movement across the country. So it should be a great conference. Yeah, I, I, he wasn't available for this taping, but tell us a little bit more about his work. Um, well, Malik is in, is in Detroit. Um, D-Town Farms is a couple of acres, and I'm sorry I don't know a whole lot more. I'm getting to the age where I can't remember things that well, but mm-hmm. um, I have known Malik for, uh, I would say, uh, at least half of my food justice career, which is about 20 years old now. Um, I met Malik um, at a Kellogg conference, and they were challenging um, a land trust deal with um, a particular um, um, real estate development d- developer who had just recently decided that he was going to be the one to solve the quote-unquote food deserts in Detroit. And the city of um, Detroit had agreed to sell him thousands of acres of property, and they kind of got involved and organized and pushed back on the Kellogg Foundation and the Kresge Foundation because this question of power is really very important. Sometimes people can get in rooms and have conversations. They sound really good. And then next thing you know, several hundred thousand dollars has, you know, been put on the table for this particular entity to take control of vacant land in communities that most people don't even care anything about. When you have someone like Malik and the group that he was working with, um, D-Town Farms, there ready to do that work and able to do that work. Um, You don't need someone else from outside of your community to come in and heal you. Their community has the intellect to heal themselves. Right, and that that's how the body works. Mm-hmm. We're self-healing organisms. Mm-hmm. And that's how a community should work if left to do that. But most times there's this idea that, oh, you can't do that. We have to do it for you. I don't like that. That bothers me. I, I know. I, that just doesn't feel right to me. Let's connect this with the co-op movement. Um, because that's the idea of ownership. Ownership matters. Mm-hmm. Ownership and engagement matters. I mean, uh, I just did a talk yesterday about the cooperative principles. And um, one of the things that um, I think we have to understand is that all seven of them work together. And they weren't really designed to just be the principles. Um, so there's some opportunity for us to make those principles what we need them to be. But the idea behind autonomy and as an organization and that a group of people can come together for their common good, or whether it's around, whether it's social, um, was it social, um, cultural, and economic needs. So 
the co-op can fit all of those things for individual people. And then you can be autonomous and you can work with other co-ops and you can educate yourselves. And all of these are part of, it's all a part of the cooperative movement. So um, in in the Twin Cities, we're fortunate we have a lot of co-ops and they're personified by food, <laughs> food co-ops, um, like the one I work for. Um, but that's not the only way to cooperate, um, so there's the corporate structure of a co-op, but there's also the social movement of cooperation. So when and where do the when and where and how do they come together is up to each individual community. But certainly we need each other, and we need to capitalize our own food businesses. Yeah, capitalize food businesses, and and as a tool of economic development. And there has been there are so much there. There's this wonderful emerging economy where people are going out and creating their own food businesses, and and commercial kitchens are opening up, and and. A a lot of these people are going to be participating in this conference. Appetite for Change mm-hmm. um, um, is a wonderful group, um, mm-hmm. as uh, as is um, you know uh, the uh, Good Acre, and, and and so there's there's yeah, this Project promise. Sweetie Pie, Project yeah. Sweetie Pie. Mm-hmm. There's a real promise of urban agriculture. Mm-hmm. I think there's this. I mean, for me, again, you know, I kind of you know I'm I'm a part of the urban agriculture movement, and I love it. But I think the real promise of the movement is its ability to get people re-engaged with stewardship. Um, and not so much around land production or food production, but land stewardship. And once we can understand how to take care of our communities and that we can maybe grow our own food or we can help someone else grow food, but that we have a responsibility to take care of each other, I think that's what urban agriculture will bring in. I think we'll sell ourselves short if we think this is about food production. So what is I know it about? that's hard to no, hear. <laughs> no, it's, no, I don't think. I, I, I actually, I, I think it. I think that's it's true. I mean, uh, and, and I think there's a big role in facing trauma, and that is the challenge that we have. Uh, I, I think we all struggle with because it's not fun to face trauma. It's not fun to face that hard stuff. But it's almost okay. So I took this ten-story slide <laughs> at the City Museum in St. Louis. It was great. But I realized right before I went on the slide, I was like, so like, oh, that's gonna be horrible. And then it wasn't that big of a deal going down it. It's kind of a cool little slide. But that I are think you is, saying slide? I'm saying slide. City Museum has a ten-story slide. Oh, so you like get on literally a slide? Yeah. And you slide. You down. slide ten, ten stories. But my long story with that, I know I'm getting some odd, but. <laughs> <laughs> facing facing trauma when we can face the hardship sometimes the moment isn't as bad as we are afraid the moment's going to be does that make sense to you I, I think so because the reality is that whether we face it or not is it impacts our lives i mean we have a country that has not faced um its history around intolerance and inequity and look what we have now you know, we have a society that's growing more and more intolerant and more and more inequitable. And still people have the blinders on like, oh, it's not really there. It's not really about race. It's not really about gender. It's not really about this or that. It's no, it's about it is about the trauma. And so one way or another, we have to address it. Either you do it or it does you. <laughs> Facing it, facing it. So, face it, 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 face it